our family has grown. Welcome to the world, Hannah baby. Introducing a new collection, Hannah Soft, made with Tencel. It's so breathable, with stretchy comfort for all of baby's first moments. And it's cool and gentle on their skin all year round. Entrusted Hannah quality for your most precious gift. Hannah Soft, made to last. Shop now at hannahanderson.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the No Bad Dogs podcast with me, Tom Davis, the podcast where we love, live, and work with dogs. And today we have a very special guest on, Zach Scow. Is it Scow or Sco? Scow. Scow. I knew I was going to butcher that. Zach Scow, and Zach is the founder, if, if I'm correct, of Marley's Mutts. Yep. Cool, man. Um, so Zach does many, many, many different things from my understanding. This is one of our first times really uh, sitting down and talking with each other. And um, I've heard such fabulous, great things about this human being, not only on the dog level, but uh, on every other level. So welcome, Zach. Thanks for being on. And um, why don't you just uh, why don't you just tell me a little bit about what you do right now currently in, in the dog world? Oh, boy. <laughs> we do... Um... We do a lot in the, in the dog world. So uh, Marley's Mutt's Dog Rescue, which is our the, the primary organization, yeah, which I founded in 2009. Wow. Uh, after a, a bout with liver disease, I was in liver failure in 2008 through 2009. And Jeez. Part of my my recovery of, of getting, you know, into a transplant program, getting through my recovery and my rehabilitation was all around dogs. So I, by I. I was very suicidal. I was very addicted. I was very much alcoholic, and and I didn't I didn't know how to put one foot in front of the other, or even begin how to understand where to start to try and live again without all of the vices that I've had, without the, the self love that I carried with me everywhere. So my dogs really helped me uh, literally put one foot in front of the other and start to walk, um, help me start to um, get my mind focused on something other than than all these ter- this this dangerous poison that was happening wow. in, in between my ears and then and that's how Marley's month started it was just me fostering dogs I'd, I'd been working with the Humane Society for three years prior and uh and when I when I you know got out of the hospital in a couple months in the hospital when I got out it was just fostering dogs to keep my mind on something other than wanting to kill myself you know um other than focused on the way I looked the way I felt you know I was yellow and 140 pounds and I had a catheter in my back and, and, wow. and I was just a sick dude you know and wow so so we just started with uh fostering it was just i, I just surrounded myself with dogs and and tried to get up and and walk and do all those things i needed to do to qualify for uh, a liver transplant you know and um wow so but, let me let me just that's a lot let me back up just a little yeah. bit so i can you know not only for anybody out there that wants to hear your story but for myself as well 
Um, let me back up just a little bit. So you had liver failure um, because was there was it just like a disease that you Acute had? Acute alcoholic hepatitis. So okay. I drank myself until liver failure at 20 wow. years old. 20? I started 28. Oh. So I started to turn yellow. I started to, my belly started to swell up. It was a condition called ascites. And I, um, I did everything I could to, to, uh, steer clear of that diagnosis or to completely ignore that diagnosis. You know, I, I laid out in the sun to, so that I wouldn't look as yellow. I wore baggy clothes so you couldn't see my belly. I wore shades so you couldn't see how yellow my eyes were. Holy I stayed out of the hospital. I mean, I was in shit. full liver failure for three months before I actually went into the hospital. Um, cause I just couldn't face the music, you know? Yeah. Holy and, uh, that's yeah. crazy. So your, the liver failure happened and that's, that's, I mean, that's no, that's not easy to, to get back from, um, as well as you have. And, um, and then after that, how did, I, I think I missed how the, how did, obviously when, I mean, dogs are great for, for anything, but recovery for yeah. sure. How did, when did the dogs come in? you know, for your recovery, was it something that you knew that you had a, an issue at the time and you just, you're like, you, did you want to get better at that time in your life? Like, where was your head yeah, at? Yeah, well, at, so at that time, I, the only thing we were focused on as a family was getting me a liver transplant. So it was really just my dad and I living up here in Tehachapi and I'd been in the hospital for two months. I got admitted to the comprehensive transplant program at Cedar sinai and the whole goal was to stay alive long enough to qualify for transplant. I was, I had an 86% chance of death within 90 days without a liver transplant. So I was as sick as you can get. And so I didn't, wasn't expected to make it six months. Um, but if I wanted to survive six months, which is just to keep you eligible in order to be eligible for transplant, you have to have six months of sobriety, verified sobriety. So, um, you know, I got, I got home and things got worse before they got better. You know, I went through full opiate. I got addicted to opiates in the hospital and addicted to Dilaudid and morphine. And, and so I had to go through that experience. And, and that was really my, my dogs really, really, really helped me get through that. Cause it was so fragile and it almost killed me just because I was so fragile. I couldn't, I couldn't go to the bathroom for myself. I couldn't really walk my, I had ammonia on my brain, so I couldn't really stand. I couldn't, I had no balance. Uh, and my dogs, you know, the, the experience of going through like a two day long withdrawal, yeah. um, my dogs were in my bed with me and, and helped keep me grounded. I was full, you know, full hallucinations. I was seeing serpents and the devil and like all kinds of crazy Damn. stuff. That's know, it was crazy. an awful experience. Yeah. That's real. Like that, you know, you, you, yeah. you kind of see stuff like that in movies, but I don't think I've ever met anybody that actually has gone through. Yeah. Uh, something I hadn't like slept that. for like three or four nights. You know, I, I didn't sleep for a long time. I had, when I got out of the hospital, I, I was so addicted that I convinced my dad to drive me to the hospital several times just to get shots of dope, you know, just because I was, I was, I was hurting, wow. you know, and, and, and then I, I finally had to bite the bullet and go through withdrawals. And, um, so after that experience, you know, I had this really, I had a real aha moment. I had a real epiphany. Um, and, and I had a couple of different epiphanies. One, I had, I had, <laughs> I don't know if your policy is on curse words. No, we, we just, don't have any policies. You can right. curse all you want. I had just shit myself in my bed, and I was, I was completely naked. I couldn't, you know, again, I, I was taking this stuff called Enulose, which is this, it clears out your system to keep ammonia off your brain. And I so I lost my bowels, and I had to get up and try and, you know, I'm in the bathroom, and I'm looking at myself naked, and I'm like, 100 and I'm 40 pounds lighter than I am now. And I'm not a big guy. 
Um, and I'm completely yellow, and I got this huge belly with all these varicose veins, like these purple veins feeding Whoa, my stomach. And, dude, it's like a zombie. Oh, I looked like the, and I'm just yellow and purple because you bruise really easily when you're liver failure. I just <sighs> looked like that. I didn't recognize myself. I started to cry, you know, and yeah, just kind scary. of sob. And yeah, and I turn, turn around, I could feel my dogs behind me. I turn around, look around, and 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 they're all looking at me like like I'm, you know, like the, the sexiest man alive. Like <laughs> there's nothing wrong with me. Like uh, like you know, they still recognize my soul. Like uh, what still exists in me that is good. Yeah. And that has potential, and and wow. so that that moment was kind of like a do or die. You know, if I if I continue to feel sorry for myself, I was just going to end up withering away. And if I um, got my shit together and and started to try and live, really try and live, yeah, then then there was some hope for me. And and so I started to walk my dogs in the morning. I started to journal and started to try and take my dogs out. I couldn't really hold up if I got pulled over at that time walking like if the dogs pulled pulled me yeah. too hard I would it would have been pretty ugly so I was walking off leash and I uh it was real early in the morning there's this um we're up here in the mountains and I'm walking up and there's a sun's coming up behind this this hill that's up at the top of my mountain and so there's this big shadow being cast from this this figure that's coming over the as the sun is rising I'm going is that a bear is that a yeah what is that? Because we we've done that walk, you know, a few times. I'd done it several times before I got sick, and I'd never seen anybody on that walk. So we get closer, and it turns out to be this old guy, who, whose name is Wynn, uh, is short for Wendell, and he's by himself. And he's like a two parkers on. He's this little eighty-year-old man, and I'm like, what the hell is this guy doing out here by himself? You know, because it, it's kind of bear country, and we have mountain lions, especially at dawn and dusk. This is in Cal. This is in California, is that right? Yeah, yeah. So like two hours north of LA. A two hours north. Okay, cool. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so we end up talking to this guy, and and he's on this walk, been taking care of his wife for the past three years, who had just died of cancer. Damn. And he had done he had done that walk with her prior to her getting sick every day for I don't know how many years, right? So this is the first time this guy, who's lost everything, you know, that his life revolved around in his wife and he's out old as fuck you know, yeah. in mountain lion country at dawn uh to get his walk in and, and i'm thinking to myself like you know i've been feeling sorry for myself yeah every day for the last i don't know how long and here's this guy who just lost everything that he cares about and he could be easily sitting at home feeling mm-hmm. sorry for himself crying in his pillow popping you know, yeah. pain pills or doing whatever to get through the grief, but he's out here working. He's out here working it and he's out here, you know, getting his life back. And wow. it's so envy. I thought that was so, I mean, he didn't ask any questions about me. He wouldn't let me feel sorry for myself. He just asked about my dogs. He just wanted to know. He, I mean, I look like the sickest sick person you've ever seen. I look like a, a walking yeah. dead person. It sounds like, and he didn't, yeah. and most people prior to that point had been like, Jesus Christ, what happened to you? You look, you know, you look yeah. awful. And he didn't say anything. He just wanted to know who's the black dog, who's the little dog, who's the white dog. You know, and, and then so we started doing that walk together, and, like and every, that really helped me. Every day? Yeah, as often as possible, yeah. Yeah. And um, and that really helped me. Um, that really helped me to, to not feel sorry for myself and to get on the right road. And he ended up buying an RV, selling his house, buying an RV, and traveling the country uh, selling old people vitamins. Uh, at old people homes. So and then he got remarried. He found another wife. It's like at 25 80? years younger than him. Yeah. Wow. And uh, yeah, he passed away a couple of years ago. Uh, yeah. But he, but he sure as shit 
got his life, you know, back, back and together. adapted. And yeah. So that was, that was another epiphany that you kind of had when you saw, uh, yeah, totally. Wend- yeah. This guy, his name was, is Wendell. Yeah. Wendell. Yeah. And, uh, you're like, man, if this guy just lost his wife to cancer is out here mm-hmm. walking, you know, his old bones around still, still mm-hmm. killing it. You were like, damn. So that, yeah. that sets you back. That's incredible. Yeah. Wow. So, so you went through the liver failure at 28, 29. Uh-huh. Is that right? Yeah. I got out of the hospital a week before my 29th birthday. Okay. And then after the 29th birthday, your dog, so your dog stuck by you, um, mm-hmm. didn't look at you any different, you know, no matter if you no. shit your pants or not. <laughs> exactly. and, and, you know, they helped you move forward. And it sounds to me that you were like, look, if I'm going to continue this life, it's going to be, you know, cause these guys are pushing me to do it, which then maybe in return in the future is, you know, part of the reason why you give back to them now is that. Oh, totally. Yeah. Yeah. So, 100%. Cool, man. That's crazy. So after that, so after your dogs have helped you got through that and, um, you got through well, all the that real stuff. miracle was that I got to six months sobriety. I wasn't yeah. supposed to make it 90 days. I ended up getting to six months sobriety um, in, in, in so much better shape than I was when I got out of the hospital that I, my, my numbers, if you graphed it on a chart in terms of my numbers getting better, it was, they just, it, it was a dramatic increase so that my numbers just got, I had to get tested every, every week in the beginning, twice a week. Like drug, so te- I had to get drug tested, blood, blood tested to make sure that my, I was so fragile that I could go into complete kidney failure or liver failure at really any time. And I had pancreatitis and, and my gallbladder was swollen and I had kidney stones, all kinds of weird shit. Jeez. So, you know, so you, you're getting tested constantly. And, and at first it was just like, he's not going to make it. This is, they talked about sending me home on hospice at the hospital anyway. And like, at 28 years old. Yeah. And yeah. did you, and, did you, Zach, did you have a significant other at the time or were you living by yourself or my what? My dad was my, my dad was my significant other. Cool. <laughs> so he helped you out yeah. through this process. He's just an engineer. Yeah. He, he was just, you know, when I first got admitted to the hospital, the, the doctor said, you know, your, your son needs a transplant and he's not going to get one. Um, you know, so that's, scary. that's your Imagine reality. That. Yeah. Yeah. Imagine that. Okay. Yeah, that was my reality. And, and so he just set to trying to make it happen, to, to get me to wherever I needed to be so that I would get the help that I needed. And, um, and yeah, what really ended up, it wasn't any sort of modern medicine. They took me off most of my medication, which was really helpful when I got admitted to the program at Cedars, which is all, ironically where I was born. Um, wow, full circle, man. And, yeah, for sure. And, um, and so by the time I got six months, I didn't need a liver transplant and, and there's not anybody, there's 0.5% of, of liver disease patients have the ability to have of cirrhosis patients actually have the ability to regenerate healthy, new liver tissue. Um, cirrhosis is scarring of the liver. So it, yeah. typically when you are in, especially when you're in stage, you die or you get a transplant. That's what happens to you. So you didn't. So, so, Go I didn't ahead. die or get a transplant. Yeah, I ended up okay. making it, and, and then I've just gotten better and better and better and better and better. It's been almost 10 years now since I got admitted. I got admitted August 3rd, um, August 3rd, 2008, and um, and yeah, so I, my, I don't even have cirrhosis of the liver anymore. I, I have this thing called a fibrosis yeah. uh, scan, and the fibro scan, you know, confirms for the last three years that I no longer have cirrhosis, which is like a miracle. Wow, man. So it rebuilt it rebuilt everything your your liver and your kidneys and everything rebuilt itself kind of. 
Yeah, yeah. My kidneys, you know, my my your kidneys are are, are a much more delicate, different thing than your liver. They're not they're not regenerative like your liver. But right. my kidneys were in such a state because of my liver. So once my liver improved, my kidneys my kidney function improved. So my luckily my kidney luckily I was not on dialysis. You know, I didn't I didn't achieve like a really progressive state of kidney failure. But my kidneys were just shot because my liver was shot. Right. It just um, went downhill from there. Yeah, and so ever since then, you know, like I went to, I had my comprehensive review twice a year where I have to go to Cedars and they they look at all my imaging and my blood work and they talk to me and they feel my stomach and look at my my abdominal. I have to go for a cancer screening every uh, six months and and wow. yeah, they're just basically baffled, you know, that this doesn't happen to people that um, we we never see, uh, especially when your numbers have been that high. We don't ever see that kind of reversal. So Damn. I'm definitely a lucky, lucky dude, and it wasn't because of modern medicine. It wasn't because of, I mean, it was definitely because I, I'm in a program of sobriety, and it was definitely because I found another, I found purpose in life. It was definitely because I'm, I'm plugged into something greater than myself. It's definitely because I have a, a God of my understanding, which I'm not ashamed to use the word God, even as an atheist, you know, sure. uh, a, a profound, growing up profoundly atheistic yeah. and agnostic, you know, my I'm not, a, I'm not afraid to talk about God um, who has nothing to do with Jesus, who has nothing to do with, you know, Allah or, or Buddha or, you know, maybe has maybe has a lot to do with all of them. Yeah. You know, um, but, uh, but a having high, something. Yeah, there's a higher, higher power. Right. Having yeah. something in your life that, it, that, that you are plugged into that isn't you. Wow, dude. You know? That is, well, that's the podcast, everybody. No, I'm kidding. That's pretty remarkable, though. <laughs> that's a story in itself. That's insane. Well, um you know, before I forget, you know, congratulations and all that, because that is, I mean, you probably were mentally just, you know, ready to just not be here anymore. I could imagine. Oh, man, that's the thing we should talk about, man, because everyone, everyone hears my story. They go, oh, what a courageous, <laughs> yeah, what a courageous, like what a strong guy. And it was the opposite of that. There was very little I can like, see that. self self-born strength coming from me. I didn't wake up every morning and go like, see, let's seize the day. Right. No, it was more like if my dogs don't get my ass up out of bed, I'm just going to, you know, if it, very little, like I, I had lost all fight. My focus was on, especially in the beginning, was just on trying to be high. I didn't want to be around and I just didn't know how to live yeah. with all the feelings that were coming up. I didn't know how to address all the shame. I couldn't stand myself. I couldn't look in the mirror. It was like, there was, if I didn't have my dad, you know, and my dogs, then in the, the program, there would be no me period. This would not, if this, if this whole spiel, this whole yeah. life journey depended on my, um, stick to yeah. and, and, and my gumption, we would have failed within like week one. <laughs> wow. So your dogs and your dad, you know, saved your life that, so yeah. when you're, when you're, I mean, I, I don't, I don't ever want to, you know, be in that position, but I'm sure, excuse me, I'm sure that there's a lot of people out there that, you know, know somebody or, you know, you know, what, what's going through your mind when your body is literally shutting down and yeah. well, it's interesting. Um, it's interesting what goes through your mind. There's a, there's a level of vanity that, that, um, you're, com you're combating like your cultural vanity, which you don't realize how you don't realize how, um, central vanity is to some of how you perceive the world until you look scary, you know, and, and when you look scary, yeah, physically scary. Yeah. And, and when, when, how you look affects other people in a visceral way, it's, it's, uh, 
it's a weird position to be in because you don't want to be out in public. You don't want to, it makes it hard to even try to get better because it freaks people out. I mean, I couldn't even, it was tough for me to go to meetings because people were so taken back by the way I looked that really? they didn't want to get close to me and, 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 and get close to somebody that was going to die. Um, you know, it's a very, it was very real. It was very, very, very real. I mean, I, 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 I had a difficult time talking sometimes. I didn't know where I was. Sometimes I was very, very weird looking, you know, when we how, found, long, how long did you, how long did you look like that after you were out of the hospital? Uh, well, probably from, from about April before I went into the hospital, I didn't look very, very good. And then certainly until through December of 2000. So basically a good portion of to the year 2008 and then right around January, February of 2009, I really started to, to, I, I took after physical fitness and wellness. Like I took after alcohol and drugs. Oh, I good. just, I, I did, I did everything I could to, I worked out every night because I had finally gotten the ability at first I could barely walk. So you had to walk and then maybe hike and then you can jog and then you can run. Mm-hmm. And, and then, so at that point, you know, eight months later, eight months after diagnosis, I could run. Yeah. So I, I was starting to do things that, so I got rapidly better like that. That's the thing that impressed me the most about the human body is just how truly quickly you can metamorphosize what you thought was a rut that you'd be in forever. Yeah. You know, cause of how, you like felt, how quickly, yeah. yeah. How quickly you, if you apply yourself, you change the way you eat. Um, that's a big thing that they don't ever really talk about in liver when you're in liver, when you have liver disease, you know, they'll, they'll talk about salt. Don't, don't eat a lot of salt, you know, reduce your red meat consumption and try not to eat, you know, processed meat, but they don't really talk to you about what you can do proactively to help yourself and how much fiber you need and how much, how many vegetables you need and, and how you shouldn't be eating red meat and how you shouldn't cut out salt and how you shouldn't eat sugars, you know, and complex carbohydrates, which are all processed in the liver and, mm-hmm. and all these things that you need to stick away from or else you're going to get, you're going to stay sick. Yeah. And we have such a terrible diet in this country today that yeah. I think I think yeah. 95% of people that are in liver failure don't ever even have close to a shot of getting better because they don't realize that, yeah. that they that the shot that the the potential even exists. If people knew from right out of the gate that hey listen you're in liver failure here are the things you can do that will really drastically affect your life. You can get out and move, you know you can move your body, walk, jog, do whatever you need to do, get on a stationary bike, walk your dogs. And then radically look at what it is that you put in your body. You know, if you put shit in your body, you're going to get shit mm-hmm. out. And when you're that fragile, when you're so fragile that, I mean, I ate a handful of McDonald's fries um, like two months after I got out of the hospital. And just the salt content in that sent me into basically like an episode Damn. of liver failure where my, my stomach started to, when you're in it, when you have ascites, when you're in liver failure, your stomach fills with, with bile and blood that your liver isn't processing. So you have this huge nine months pregnant belly that's swashing around. You can hear all the liquid in it. Damn. That's crazy. You have to get it drained, uh, which is called a paracentesis. So they, they cut a hole on you, stick a big ass tube. suction tube in there yeah. and suck all the shit out of your body. And, and if you, and if you have, you drink salt, that, I mean, if you consume salt, that condition worsens considerably. Um, but people don't really know. I mean, the reason I got better is because I, I, I had a, sh- I gave myself a shot, you know? Yeah. And your dogs kind of rose you up and, 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 uh, got you out of that. And that's, that's, that's incredible. So yeah. Yeah. The person that was responsible for nearly killing me, it was me. And the person that was going to continue to try and kill me, it was me. 
And, and the more I got out of my own head and into something else where I could, I could live for my dogs, I could live for, I just didn't, you know, I mean, the, the brutal truth of it all is mm-hmm. I just didn't think I was worth saving, you know, yeah. but my dog, my dogs did. And my dad, right. Did. That what an inc- uh, yeah, that's incredible. You know? Yeah, no, that's, that's incredible. I could see, you know, there's a commercial that um, could partially mentally relate to anybody out there that's listening that maybe they can get a better visual. There's, um, there's a commercial that really hit home with me once. And um, it was the, I think it was, I want to say it was Budweiser one of those bigger beer brands and uh, the, the owner and the dog were hanging out. It was just like a bromance type thing. And he went out with his buddies and it was like this montage of him drinking and then him not coming home because he got into an accident and his dog waiting for him. Yeah. 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 Dude. And, and for me, I was like, you know, and I don't, I don't drink and drive like ever. And I encourage people to never do that. However, you know, it happens every day. And that, that for me, even though I don't do it was like so emotionally because your dogs are depending on you or looking for you. And so that's kind of what it was like for you. It seems my, my dad used to tell me every day before he would leave the hospital every night before he would leave, he would tell me, son, you got to come home. I can't get tugged to come in the fucking house. (laughs) Meaning meaning that the dog is sitting on the driveway looking down the driveway waiting for me to come home dude yeah that's and an- so you would tell me that every night you know hey kiddo i need you to come home i can't get tugged to come in the house that's enough that would be enough for me i feel yeah. and i you know i i think i like mentally with my love with dogs if if somebody were to say your dog wants you to come home or, or they were sitting there crying and waiting i think i would mm-hmm. be able to i say that but i haven't yeah. gone through a fraction yeah, I mean, of the shit I, that you've gone through but yeah damn. it's weird when you're when you're possessed with with like the 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 demon of addiction it's i i, I did not it's, it's funny when we talk about drinking and driving i didn't drive sober for for more than a decade every single time i got behind the wheel i was intoxicated right. and um wow. I, I was in, i was intoxicated all the time so i whenever and i drove i had to drive mm-hmm. so i was intoxicated i mean i, I wasn't shit-faced but i was you're yeah i mean my function my tolerance was through the roof you know so what what would have gotten someone else passed out completely? I, you know, I might have not been barely give affected. Me, give me an but example. I drank, oh, I mean, I I could drink. When I when I finally when my liver failed, I was drinking a box of wine a day, which is like five liters of wine a day. So that's like eight bottles. Damn. Yeah. From from the time I woke, so if I went to bed at at midnight, I would wake up at two, chug an entire solo cup of wine. Wake up at four, chug an entire solo cup of wine. Wake up at six, chug an entire solo cup of wine. Just chug it, warm wine. Just chug a full red solo cup. Because you, so I, you had yeah. to. I don't. I had to. Yeah, oh, I, wow. I, I would go into withdrawals within like four or five hours. Damn. You know, I'm really feeling like. It's brutal. Yeah, really, really feeling uncomfortable. You get very even more uncomfortable in your skin than you already are. You start to get nauseous. You start to get really, really shaky. Um, you know, and then the longer you wait, the worse it gets. There's the intense kind of paranoia. There's, there's this feeling like, you know, you're just going to burst that you really, really shake like crazy. You, you, you get real sweaty and vomity and like, you know, you just, Damn. you know, what you, you know what you need. I mean, as an alcoholic, you just don't ever get to that point. You, you try to make sure that you're covered, that you have alcohol to get you through. You know, you plan out your whole day based around, it's just like narcotics. I mean, if you're dependent on heroin, you're going to plan out your day to, to get, yeah get the fix you need to, so that you can subsist. And that's how it was with me. I always knew how much alcohol I had. I always knew where I had it hidden. I always knew who I could count on for, 
for help. Uh, you know. Yeah, that's fucking crazy. Wow. Okay, so Marley's mutts came out of all of that. And yeah, how did how did how did you decide? I know that your dog saved your life, which is beautiful. How did you then decide that you were going to create a organization that is dedicated to saving dogs that are in danger? Yeah, it was pretty. Um, it was, everything was organic. I didn't plan on this. This is not what I wanted to do in life. You know, I wanted to be a fighter pilot. Uh, yeah, <laughs> my dad is a my dad's an aeronautical engineer, so that's what I always wanted to do. And, cool. um, there's one thing led to another, and, and we had been rehabilitating large dogs. Every other rescue at the time, you know, this is 10 years ago, were breed-specific, or the vast majority of them were breed-specific. So mm-hmm. we had some here. We have a Doberman rescue, and then we had, um, you know, there's a, lab, you know, a Golden Retriever rescue. and, and, and But there's nothing for mutts, which I spent a lot of time in the shelter working with the Humane Society. And everything yeah. I saw were pit bull mixes and chihuahua mixes and American shelter dogs, you know? Um, so, and my dog Marley did such a great job helping me command a pack, helping enforce the rules. He kept his harmony. He was such, as the dog possessed everything I wanted to be. It's funny how the, 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 my interpersonal dichotomy, like um, the person who I wanted to be and the person I actually was, was, was totally uh, manifested in my dogs. So Marley was everything I visualized wanting to be. He's this Rottweiler pit bull. They just commanded respect. He didn't start fights, but he would he would he would uh, negotiate them down. He yeah. he knew the rules. He just like like other dogs wanted to be around him. You know, boys and girls. I'm like you know, yep. like he, he just and then Tug, my other dog, was fucking terrified of everything, just people, places, and things. He's a white Labrador, yep. like mix. You know, and he was scared of everything, which is what Dad was scared of everything. You know, and and if you. If you scared him enough, then he's gonna punch you in the face, and and then <laughs> yeah. and then run away. You know? Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. So it's funny how that that was my uh, those were my my dogs. But Marley just had this in, instinctual ability to help rehabilitate um, insecure dogs and and kind of tame the pack. And you know, I was building that pack up. Sometimes I had ten dogs in there. You know, lived in the garage at my dad's place, and we started to build some kennels and. And uh, the the work was really unique because it was we were doing work for mutts. We were doing work for for, for the underdog, for dogs that weren't forgotten. I mean, we didn't have, we weren't going after purebred golden retrievers. And, you know, we were trying to help dogs that were like us, that it was like me, that were right. throwaway, throwaway dogs. And, and then it just really worked. I didn't even come up with a name. That was one of the, one of the employees at the pet lodge came up with that name. And, and so it just, it just continued to, to kind of grow out of control. People wanted to be a part of it. And I worked on trying to, to help people, uh, I mean, it, it, when you when you're starting a nonprofit organization, it's difficult, man. You don't know the first thing about where to start, how to follow through, how to you know you got to get your bylaws and your board of directors and your secretary and your treasurer and your yep. and you got to get all these things organized and you got to have money to apply for status and you got to have do all this stuff and and it just all just kind of addressed it one thing at a time. I mean, really, how it started was just making posters. I made adoption posters with good pictures and ridiculous stories mm-hmm. that would. You know, so I tried to humanize the dogs through these funny stories. And I just put, this is, it wasn't pre-social media. I just didn't use social media much then. So I just put my posters up everywhere. You yeah, know, they yeah. all I taped them to, taped them to walls and to windows everywhere. And that was my routine was I'd add dogs to my pack, get them adopted. Um, and then post adoption flyers all over town. And then that, that worked and people started to take attention. And I had little tin donation receptacles all over town. I panhandled at AA meetings for, for adoption, <laughs> for adoption mo- money. For money. Yeah. yeah. 
for, for spay neuter money. And, and, uh, and it just, it just continued to grow. And, and then we started to add programs, you know, we, as the years went by, we, we, we added, a the first thing we added was a therapy wing, you know, or an educational wing where I would go out and bring Marley and talk about the, the challenges of being a, a pit bull in, in today's society and, yeah. and let people really humanize the breed. Cause he's a black intimidating looking pit bull, you know, and mm-hmm. I bring him to schools and all over the place and tell my story. And, and, um, and then we, and then that's become the miracle months program, which we have our own curriculum called pledge, um, positive leadership and empathy. Um, what is this program for, now? I, I missed it. It's called pledge positive leadership and empathy for dog guardians. Mm-hmm. And so we take that out to, to kids all over the place and to different institutions. We've been to over 120 different nonprofit organizations and schools where we've brought our team of, of uh, therapy dogs that we've um, that we use for education and for these are all dogs that have been certified through our organization. So they've been uh, CGC certified and then therapy certified as mir- as miracle mutts. Miracle mutts. Um, That's to, what I was looking yeah. for. Yeah. To go out through through our community and, and educate and and really just. Um, just so what's promote your, the human canine bond. What's that's that's fantastic. What's your so the Miracle Mutts is your your own therapy course, therapy dog course. It's our, well, the we 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 therapy certify dogs. So say you've adopted a Marley's Mutt and you want to get that dog therapy certified, and so certified to go into different institutions mm-hmm. and places, schools, wherever to to educate or be therapeutic. Um, you have to go through our training course with Liz Cover, who's our Canine Assistant Activities Director. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to pass the Canine Good Citizen certification, and then you have to put in 40 hours of community service uh, in any of our programs. Which are, we have a 12-step program at the Mission. We have Barks and Books, which is a uh, reading program for kids with developmental disabilities. We have programs at New Advances for people with disabilities at Mountain Pathways at like any. You know, that's great. Any place you can imagine, we we go. Any place you can, the juvenile hall, any dogs, we do it. And do you guys um, do you guys do the same uh, protocols of like TDI Therapy Dog International? Uh, you know, essentially, yeah. I mean, the the what what you have to do in order to become therapy certified is is the same baseline certification that everybody right. needs, which is your canine good citizen, which is a ten point test right. that requires you know you to demonstrate your proficiency. And then to follow through on that proficiency in order to become a therapy certified, you have to put in 40 hours of actual therapy work where you're going out in the community with our team to schools and all these different places. And then different dogs get different designations. So some dogs we can't bring into schools for autistic kids because it's too overwhelming. Yeah. Some, some dogs we can bring anywhere. They get different, different labels, different levels of, of proficiency. And um, so, yeah, we, we apply by all the same, same guidelines. That's fantastic. I actually got asked to do a talk about um, not necessarily therapy dogs, but how dogs make the workplace and uh, at academic place uh, just a, just a better better uh, environment, I guess. And um, yeah, so I'm gonna go and do that. And that's gonna we be take cool. our dogs to finals. Good. So our our dogs go to finals week at BC and CSUB, Cal State University Bakersfield. That's awesome. So, uh, so the kids are stressed out of their oh, minds. They imagine. go to the little puppy petting, puppy petting zoo and uh, take a deep and, breath and get yeah, it, exactly get the test done. That's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. We also did a um, we also did a um, we raised a therapy dog for Hoffman Hospice. So the, our big local hospice company has a, a one of our dogs, Maggie, who lives there. Wow. 
That's and we're cool. working on a, a funeral home also. Yeah, I've done that before. I've done a. I trained a dog to to do like. Um, I guess therapeutic type work at funeral homes. Yeah. And sometimes that. Yeah. Be be a dog, right? Like. Yeah. Exactly. Be, be Not too hard. Yeah. yeah. Just yeah. just live and you know don't jump on everybody. Pretty much. Spread the love. Yeah. Yeah. That's really really cool. And then you're also in involved. Um, I was talking to John Ipity the Bull last yeah. week, and you're involved in the positive change program. Did you create that as well, or is that something that you kind of joined in on, or? No, that's that's our program. So Positive Change, which is our inmate canine training program, is Marley's Mutt's program. And uh, so we looped John in probably a year ago, maybe a little more than a year ago. We've been doing it for two years and, I don't know, two two years and a quarter, basically. Yeah. And, um, yeah, that was a the, – the, the whole team, you know, helped make that happen. You know, Lisa Porter, who's one of our head trainers, and Leah Marquez. And it's something we were trying to do four years ago um, after our buddy Robbie got out of prison. Mm-hmm. He adopted one of our dogs, and we, we tried to get a, a variety of different institutions that just weren't weren't ready to commit. And then so finally we had an institution that was ready to commit, and we jumped on it. Awesome. And, um, and then with, with such a great group of trainers – We've got programs in four different prisons, Corcoran State Prison, which is, you know, one of the most notorious prisons in California, which is, uh, you know, high security level four, 180 prison, which is the most secure in America. Yeah. And um, two other max security prisons, uh, North Kern and Wasco, and then uh, California City Correctional Facility. We're also working on a juvenile program here in Bakersfield and, and also um, another program that we're really trying to get started here locally at the Tehachapi uh, State Prison. So yeah, we've been doing that for for almost two and a half years now, and and we've rehabilitated um, you know hundreds of inmates and hundreds of dogs, and and uh, it's the the it is by far the most wonderful thing I've ever been a part of in life. I really truly feel like I found my my calling. I think John, uh, to a degree, also has. Um, yeah. You know, to just watch. He's a great to, dude. To be able, yeah, he's an awesome dude. I owe him five compliments throughout the course of this uh, this interview. I promise him. <laughs> That, uh, yeah, that compliment too. level has to meet his compliment level. Yeah. <laughs> now he's a he's a great guy, and that's the thing that Positive Change has done is just brought a lot of really wonderful people together who want to make a difference. Yeah, and um, I mean John drives like three and a half hours to get to Corcoran. You know, program starts at eight thirty, <laughs> so he leaves his house at like four thirty in the morning. Yeah, you know, and same with Angela Aiden. You know, who's a wonderful trainer. She is coming from Santa Barbara area and, and Damn. Our, all the prisons we go to are far away for us, you know, and that says, they, a, you know, that says a lot about yeah. their personality. I mean, think about it. They're driving three to four hours to prison mm-hmm. <laughs> to yep. help, you know, that's crazy. Yeah, it's, it's weird. There's no place I'd rather be. Right. And, I, and I'm fairly confident that our whole group would say that there's no place that I would rather be than inside of a prison working with uh, these dogs and these men by, by far. I mean, there's nothing that blows my hair back more. There's nothing that I feel more strongly about as far as being when you, when you finally, when you finally, whether it's religion, whether it's your family, whether it's, um, you know, mother earth, whether it's the, the great blue sky, whatever it is that you connect in mm-hmm. that you truly feel a part of when you feel a part of something greater than yourself, like the work that you do not only has purpose, but instills hope in other people, you know, brings where you, when you, when you find yourself able to bring light into a truly dark place of, yeah. of yourself, of your own vulnerability, uh, of really, where your your own vulnerability and your own expression of, of yourself brings people hope and light. There's nothing like it. There's nothing like being a person like myself who's 
grown up hating myself for so many years, having such a deep, deeply worn neural pathway of self-loathing that to to actually use my self-loathing, my experience to help strengthen hope, what I've been through to bring hope to other people is like a, a true confirmation of oneself to really, it finally lets me know that I'm, I'm okay with who I am, that who I am, it can still be inspirational, that who I am is okay, that, that who I am is, is, uh, can make the difference in these people's lives. And, and if I continue to open up and I continue to share my experience, then it's only going to get better and there's only going to be more of an impact. And like, it really, it, it, the connections that we make in prison are so, you know, are so amazing. It's, it's, it's some of the most profound uh, connection you can have in, in life. You know, it's a type of like unique love. It really is. Yeah. And I was talking to John about it too. And he was saying, um, that you guys are in some pretty high, high security prisons. And, um, now Zach, are there any pushbacks that you get from the inmates? You know, because some of these guys just don't give a shit about anything. Not no. the guys that you particularly work with. I'm just saying, but there are obviously other inmates in the prison. So do you, do you ever get oh, like yeah. nervous I mean, situations yeah, sure. where, you know, no, I mean that, well, the first time you go into a new prison, probably, I mean, it, it it's prison. So you're, you're walking in and usually we're oftentimes we're unaccompanied because we are, we are brown card holders. We, we are basically employees of the state. So we, we accompany ourselves to, to the facility. So you're, you're not even among- protected by security. Really? Depending on which prison we're at now. Damn. Um, so we'll, you know, depending Savage. on where at City, we're not. And when we're, when we're at, uh, at Corcoran, we always are. Um, yeah. but still, and, and you know, we're, we are, I don't know. Sometimes when we're on the yard training, where they'll every every inmate that's on the yard, which can be hundreds and hundreds of inmates, sometimes they'll line up against the fence. They'll watch us doing stuff. And like at California City, I remember one time where they were they were hollering at a lot of the guys in the program, trying to poke fun and make fun. And and then by the end of it, they were like, "Wow, this is impressive. Look at what these guys ah, are doing. Nice. This is really really cool." So the level of respect that the program has inside of the prison is prison is pretty much second to none. The guys that are involved in the dog program won't let anything bad. Not only not won't let anything bad happen to the dogs, but they generally are, are better behaved in terms of dealing drugs, uh, having conflicts. When the dogs are on the yard, they don't, they, they cease and desist. The whole you yard know? or just the guys you work with? No, that the areas that the, whenever the, the, the area of the prison that the dogs are operating in, the guys are much more conscious of what's going on. They're much more respectful. The pods are cleaner. Uh, you know, drug dealing is, is minimized incidents, meaning violent incidents are, are decreased. Like there's all kinds of byproducts of having the dogs uh, on the yard. Do you think that, do you think that's because dogs just bring uh, a certain humanity to people and they, they get distracted by, you know, some of the things totally. in front of it? Yeah. Totally, and also because the people that are in the program are respected. So a lot of the guys we have in the program are, are people that are respected within the institution. And so wow, the other cool. thing is is that they're all working outside of their race. So if it were an all-white program, then we would have problems. Be if it were an all-black program, we'd have problems. But right. this is the only program really within the facility where on the yard, but within visibility, everyone can see people working together. You know, pr- prisons in California are strictly segregated. Yeah very strictly segregated the northerners southerners blacks whites asians you know um they're it's they're separate um so our program is very much so diverse and so it's really the only place that that out in public you can see people of other races working together and i'm sure the uh i guess the the people that work or the administration of the prison they notice that and appreciate that 
Yeah, for sure. I mean, it, it definitely increases communication between correctional staff. One of the main reasons being because a lot of them adopt the dogs. A lot of the correctional staff adopt the dogs, and, and they're just working more closely together to, to fill the dog's needs. That's cool. So that means, you know, that means that uh, they're communicating better, and they're, you know, the, the real goal is to, like, humanize these guys. You know, I've had yeah. a, num- a number of different epiphanies throughout the course of this program where we, you know, we, we have 3 million people incarcerated Three million people, which for the most part are going to be kept in this this vicious cycle, of, yeah. or this you know, are, are just parked at the end of a of a life cul-de-sac that that won't let them go anywhere. And um, I mean, there are some exceptions, right? Like some people have the ability to upwardly move, or most of them downwardly move. But but what they really are is is, is you, you got three million sources of potential that were that were were just complicit and stagnating yeah. we're just saying we don't want any of these people to have a future necessarily we're going to make it very easy for you to go back to prison we're not going to prepare you to be released um so that and, and the other funny thing is that these guys are so poorly prepared for when they are released and we have all this new legislation that's releasing these guys early mm-hmm. and they are they're for the most part they're just better criminals they're not emotionally prepared one iota for life on the outside and our program very very much so focuses on be- becoming emotionally prepared for life in the in the real world and being able to employ yourself in the in the pet services industry yeah um but we just you know we if these guys go out and commit a crime i'm surprised it's not you know the the, the state of whichever prison incarcerated them isn't being charged with the crime because we're sending tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people back on the street so ill-prepared for, for coping with life that they are bound to create victims. And those mm-hmm. victims, you know, it, it's hard not to not to say that the state itself is responsible for those victims, is partially responsible for those victims. Clearly an individual carries out a crime, and that crime is, is for the most part, on them. But when you don't give them much of an option at, at, mm-hmm. uh, at surviving, at just baseline survival, you know? It's a vicious cycle. And, um, that's, that's, you know, and I think, I think, you know, there's, there's so many gray areas and I think in the, it's just in, in society in general, but when you're, when you're dealing with, it's tough playing God sometimes and telling people where they can live, where they can't, how long they have to stay in this one room. It could be 20, 50 years. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's a very, it's a very gray area, I think. Um, I mean, we're spending $47,000 a year per inmate in the state of California to employ these people. We're employing an, uh, an astronomical amount of correctional people and probation officers and all these people associated with just I mean, huge industries of employment. And, 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 and all these industries are, 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 you know, industries with great retirement and pensions and stuff like that oh, yeah. all around just just incarcerating people. You know, and, and if we and we're not preparing them in any way, shape or form for for their release. So or, or very minimally. And and um, I don't know, they're, they're, we're due for for a considerable overhaul of the criminal justice system. Um, we've been overdue for it for a long time. And I think a, a critical cog in that process is is uh, having dog programs at every prison. Yeah, I mean, have you? John and I were kind of talking about it a little bit, um, and there is a, <clears throat> excuse me, there is a difference too when when um, these incarcerated prisoners are, are actually released. There is a difference in in the statistics of them actually coming back, and you know they actually get a good decent job and continue to work with dogs. Is what John was saying. That's really totally. That's so sweet. Yeah, we have a number of guys that are absolutely going to be kick ass trainers when they get out. Um, 
And and yeah, that's the whole thing is is part of it is hope. I mean, if you don't, if you if you incarcerate someone for for 15 years, most of our guys have been in for more than 10 years. So Jeez. if they're incarcerated for that long with really no hope for what they're going to do when they're released. I mean, what? How many of them can become short order cooks and and you know mm-hmm. air mm-hmm. air conditioning mechanics? Like, mm-hmm. it's just not possible. But within the 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 pet services industry, you know, it's a hundred billion dollar a year industry, right? With yeah. with everything from 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 welfare, animal welfare, to to shelter work, to to yeah. rescue, to Petco and PetSmart, to training, to whatever. You know, there's all these these potential opportunities. And even if they didn't become dog trainers, just the emotional awareness required. To be, to be an effective trainer. I mean, what we stress is dog psychology, which, mm-hmm. which is a focus on on one's own energy. And if you're not if you're not being brutally frank with what you're feeling, you're not going to be an effective dog trainer. If you're not if you're not identifying your fears, if you're not yeah. identifying your anxieties or whatever it is that you're feeling inside, if you go into trying to train a, a reserved, borderline feral dog, into coming out of its skin, you're sure shit not going to do that. If you're neurotic, over self-focused, stressed out, you know, you, you have to identify what you feel, take some breaths, press the reset button, talk to somebody about what you feel before you want to circle back with your dog. And that's something they just don't do in prison until. Our yeah. Program. And I think too, um, you know, from what I've seen, I, I got into the dog world, uh, very organically as well. And, um, you know, I really, I really felt as if, um, you know what I what I do now is is still an organic like I you know I'm doing this because uh, it feels right type thing and um, mm-hmm. I think that some of the feral or aggression aggression or aggressive or you know react more or less reactive dogs or let's just put it this way dogs that are um, unwanted because of their behavior we'll call it that um, to make it really easy um, I think people like the people that you're working with or like my, I know myself and um, people who have been in, you know, some pretty shitty places that understand where these dogs are at mentally knowing, Hey, you know, it's not always rainbows and butterflies for these dogs and they're acting this way for a reason. And I think when you work with intent and passion and especially with animals, because there's a lot of, I do a certification program at my facility as well. I, uh, certified dog trainers for the Animal Behavioral College. So I basically polish up at the end of their literature work. Um, cool. But there's only, I guess my point is, is there's only, uh, there, there's a limit and the end of the rope of, you know, reading all the information about the dog's behavior, but actually having intent and working with the dogs uh, emotionally and, and passionately, I think, really makes makes a difference. And some of these, some of these people that you're working with are very, very passionate. I'm sure after your program of, you know, this, I'm this dog's only hope. I got to do this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They genuinely intuitively connect with the dogs. Yeah. Like, I I don't know that I, I don't, this is a double negative for you. I don't not believe in animal communication. Uh, I genuinely believe that there are certain people that can, you know, kind of intuitively relate, connect, share information with animals. Uh, It's not something I'm, I'm capable of doing. However, I am capable of being intuitive and, uh, and vulnerable and, and, um, and available, right? Like, like you just said, if you're just training a dog to train a dog and go through the motions and, yeah. and, and just to cross, cross off the list, yeah. Then, then yeah, you, you may or may not have success, but like, you're right. A lot of these guys, they, the empathy is a good word. They, they, they are, they, they empathize with these dogs are, these dogs come from a cage. Yeah. These guys are kept in a cage. These dogs right. are unwanted. 
these guys are unwanted and they genuinely feel that and they generally relate that i have experience with my horses I, we, my wife has a horse mm-hmm. we have another um, retired horse up here that someone retired up here so that we can basically pay for our horse and and i i've been wanting affection from these damn horses <laughs> for like since they moved in a couple of weeks ago and i finally i had a little moment and i thought you know i need to go out there and just stand with them and let them know that yeah. i don't need that they don't need to I, I don't need a, uh, affection from them that i'm just trying to push i, I was just trying to get something from them that i don't need it mm-hmm. and that i'm here to, to feed them and care for them and try and walk confidently amongst them uh i had this conversation with both of them and i swear to god the next day because neither of them would come up to me really they're like what the fuck is this guy want yeah. you know <laughs> and and then the, the next day there was such a shift in the way both of them viewed me it's yeah. so interesting to see. And then it's been like that ever since. I, exactly. I took the burden off myself. Like I, I, I went out of my way to kind of, all right, let me put myself in their shoes for a second. Yep. But you don't, we, we, we just be, we, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's it. That's it. And a lot of people, uh, exactly kind of what you're saying. I'm highlighting the idea of people just wanting to get a, a certification to work with dogs. And I've, I've run into them where I tell people, Hey, you know, I can't teach you how to be passionate. I can't teach you uh, how to care. I can't teach you empathy. I can't teach you these things. You have to feel it. And if you mm-hmm. don't feel it, you won't be successful with the dog. And mm-hmm. a lot of people want to go out and just play with puppies all day, and that's what they think it is. And sometimes they, they get that job working at that training camp, and they play with puppies all day, and they teach them some things. But um, you know, actually teaching a dog uh, how to be better behaviorally and, and teach them how to live a, a better life is is really what I what I prefer to do because a lot of the dogs that I work with are behaviorally challenged and um, I think you're right. I think there's there's going back to your horse thing. There's a lot of people who get into a, a room with the dog and say, "Love me. I, you have to love me because I love dogs yeah. and I'm good with dogs." And I'm having yeah, I'm having a hard day too. I'm life is life is it, yeah. shit is hit the fan. Yeah, and, yeah, hug me. And you know, I've had a hard day at work and I need some sort of information yeah yeah i know and and like have you had the experience that that um that your dogs really show you what you're afraid of or you know uh, that's my my experience especially lately in in an effort to be more empathetic to Mm -hmm. working with certain difficult dogs i have realized that i'm the energy i'm bringing forward isn't the energy isn't at the place i want to be yeah. And that it's not something even that I can fix immediately. That I'm going to have to do my best in this moment. But then I have much bigger things in life in terms of, of, of fears that I've allowed to resurface that I have to address if I'm really hoping to be the best me. Um, so this happened recently. Like the other, the other day working with one of our dogs. Ironically, it's a boy whose name is Bliss. <laughs> and he's the opposite of blissful. He is yeah. a pain in the ass. Yep. And I really realized, like, hey, Zach, you've got some, some fears bubbling up. Um, I, this dog is clearly picking up off of you some anxieties, yeah. fears, anxieties, whatever people feel comfortable using you know, sure. euphemistically. Yep. And uh, let me really know, like, I, I need to go back and, and, and get, get within myself and, and focus on what I'm afraid of, acknowledge it and, and, and uh, you know, deflate, the, mm-hmm. deflate the air from it. Yeah, I think to answer your question, I think um, dogs... You know, my my personal dogs, they, they definitely show me things. Um, and, and I think they just slow things down. I think that, that that's kind of like uh, what you're saying is, uh, anyway, what I, my perspective of it is, is they slow things down for me, which means if I get, you know, really excited about something or I get really sad or really, um, you know, something, if, if my attitude or my behavior changes, they usually stay the same. And it grounds me a bit. 
You know, mm-hmm. like if you get a really great phone call from a big opportunity or you get a really shitty phone call from somebody saying, you know, a really shitty thing, they're kind of just like, and, <laughs> you know, on, on either either end of the spectrum. And, and that's really helped me a lot, too. And I think the clients that I work with, um, the dogs that I that I work with anyway, have have definitely helped me um, remain grounded and. um you know, the the owner will come in and say all of these bad things about the dog, and um, the dog and I are just looking at each other like, "Okay, when you're done, we'll get, we'll start working together." <laughs> yeah. I see them Isn't a that lot. Funny how it's working bizarre. with dogs, working with you, uh, not to be so judgmental of people because it's our nature to be like, "God, that person's an asshole. What yeah. a dick," well, you know, or you know, this I had an interaction with so and so or whatever, and God, what a dick, what an asshole. As opposed to like. Boy, what must what must that person's life be like? What must their day be like that causes them yeah. to behave like assholes? It all know? transfers. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I see that a lot. If a if a dog comes in a certain way, I know exactly how the person is. And I've and I've yeah. actually been really registering that a lot uh, mentally. That if, yeah. if the dog comes in a certain way, chances are the person is going to be yeah. exactly what sure. they played out but, to be. Well what I also mean though is like we have a tendency um to to say, you know, if someone's a jerk or that person is an asshole. Sometimes the dog comes in and they're reactive. We say, oh, this dog is an asshole. Yeah. And so my, my, by having to be, because I don't have a choice, you know, the line of work we're in, I, I, I can't look at the dog as being an asshole. So mm-hmm. I have to, you, have to, you have to really kick in your empathy. And you have to say, all right, well, what, what might this dog be experiencing? What, what, where, you know, really put yourself yeah. in their shoes. So what it's done is given me a lot more tolerance for, actual assholes in the world definitely i can think of of you know where what what must their day be like what must their life be like that has brought them to this point as opposed to focusing on just yep. how their negative energy affects me definitely i mean um i tell the shadow trainers that um that i work with on a daily basis um to really watch that i and that's that's the thing i've started to develop and i and that's why i love talking to people like yourself and john and, and other people within the industry that um think uh, similar to, to what I do is I tell my shadow students, don't watch the dog, watch the owner. Don't worry about the dog. The dog will follow whatever you do later. Don't worry about that. The dog you can fix. Just watch the owner. Mm-hmm. And somebody will come in and they'll be, my neighbor's dog and my old dog. And then all of a sudden you look down at the dog. Story, 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 story. Yeah. My neighbor's dog, my old dog, my past dog, my other dog. And I just, I'm like falling asleep and I'm like, oh wait, can we start? Now and then, same thing. Like I had a guy come in the other day. The dog was super reactive, just typical flat collared leash dog, just reactive. I think it was like a shepherd. And the wife was—it's always role play, right? So the wife was like, "Oh, this is really scary. I can't walk. We're expecting so on and so forth." Very typical. And then the the, the dad's like, "Well, I, I I really think that the dog should defend himself and stick up and tell another dog off and bite another dog if they get in his space. And I'm like, Oh, this explains a lot, you know? So people, they, you're exactly right. It's, it's empathy of, okay, slow down, take a deep breath. You know, what's, what's really wrong here? What's really wrong? Yeah. 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 If you're truly, um, probably having more success than a therapist in someone's life. Yep. I I say that to people. I usually get the question, very often do I get the question, um, (laughs) do you train kids? Do you train husbands? Do you train wives? You know, because I just, I slow their life down. It's exactly what I do. They come in with all of these issues and all of these issues to their dog 
is whack-a-mole and popping up other places as well. It's popping into work. It's popping into their relationship at home with their family. And I think that that's naturally what happens is the dog is the easiest target. Because you're not going to you're not going to blame your kids or your you know your significant other of why you're so stressed and insecure and you know whatever, and I think the dogs are just the easiest target to to do it on. And then when the dog comes in and um, the dog and I are looking at each other like, what the hell is going on? It just makes so much more sense. And that's where I, that's where I do like a lot of my public speaking. And um, people come in and I'm like, hey, it's not your dog. It's really really not. You know, slow things down. And mm-hmm. it, make, it makes a lot of sense to them. Yeah, definitely. So, all right, man. Well, I appreciate you so much for jumping on uh, the phone call with me today, Zach. And um, I'm going to let you go. I know you're, you're a busy man. you got a lot going on. Um, so you guys... Yeah, can... this was fun, man. I appreciate it a lot. Yeah, no worries. And then, uh, like John and I talked before, um, if there's ever any uh, any opportunity or room out, out in California for me to come watch some of the um, the programs you guys do, I'd love to do that. And um, for anybody out there that wants to kind of see a little bit more of what Zach does, you can follow him at Marley's Mutts, and you can follow what the Positive Change program on Instagram too as well, right? Yep. Yeah, yeah. Marley's Mutts on Facebook and Instagram. I'm just Zach Scow on Facebook and Instagram, and then Positive Change, P-A-W-S-I-T-I-V-E on uh, Facebook and Instagram. And yeah, man, if you if you want to come out here, you know, we, we have a, a rescue ranch that we are, are developing and populating, and, and we have extra bedrooms out there that, that will shortly be filled with furniture. And if you want to come out and, uh, and come, you know, check out the prison, you know, one of a variety of different prisons out here or, yeah. or you know, work on, on how we uh, amend our our curriculum or anything like that, man. We'd love to have you. Love to, man. Thank you so much. And thanks for being on the show. Congratulations with all your success. And, um, you know, it's a true inspiration to hear your story. And uh, we'll talk soon, brother. Yeah, thanks, buddy. I appreciate it, man. All right, Zach. See you, man. So thanks again, Zach, for joining the show. And thank you guys at home or in the car, traveling on an airplane for listening to me banter with my friends in the dog industry. If you haven't yet, subscribe to our YouTube channel, Smash the subscription and download button on our No Bad Dogs podcast. And thank you guys again for following along. Talk to you next time. Our family has grown. Welcome to the world, Hannah baby. Introducing a new collection, Hannah Soft, made with Tencel. It's so breathable, with stretchy comfort for all of baby's first moments. And it's cool and gentle on their skin all year round. Entrusted Hannah quality. For your most precious gift, Hannah Soft, made to last. Shop now at hannahanderson.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.